want to say it's good to see Brother McGrew in the house. <laughs> and also, Christy, where's Christy? I lost her. Christy's in it. Man, good to see you guys. Um, Brother McGrew, he's kind of like, uh, he's just our guy around here. And uh, I wanted to brag on God and brag on him. Um, when the doctors did the x-ray, his arm was shattered. And they said, they didn't even know if this thing was going to heal back right or, or what was going to happen. So we just started praying. And the family started praying and we just started believing. Well, the doctor did an x-ray. And am I right on this, Regina? He basically said he can't even tell where there's a break. There was... And so he's already started therapy to start walking again. 90, 93 years young. Um, and my dad's been uh, sitting with him um, uh, one day a week and visiting with him. And my dad was telling him about some stuff going on with my grandma. And uh, he said every time he's there, when the guy comes in and says, you ready for bed? He said, yeah, I'm ready for bed. But this time he didn't say he was ready for bed. So dad thought, well, that was weird. Well, he asked the guy to come back later. Well, he took my dad by the hand and said, I want to pray and agree that everything gets worked out with your mother. And my dad told me yesterday, everything you prayed came to pass. And it all worked out for my grandma, my dad's, dad, my dad's mom. So we're so glad you're here. Yeah, you want to say anything? It's great what God's doing. <laughs> Sister McGrew and I started here uh, the church uh, 36 years ago. And we had, I think it was, a big Sunday night crowd would have been 10, 15 people, maybe 20. And look at it today, what God doing. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles, we're going to look at Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. And uh, how many ladies out there like bugs and creepy crawly things? I know uh, my wife isn't scared of a whole lot, but if you have a spider or a bug or some kind of critter, my wife goes insane. It's, it scares her uh, to death. I remember we were dating, and I was in Fort Smith, and she was here in Hot Springs. We weren't married yet, and so uh, it was a lot of phone calls back and forth during the week. And I remember one time I get a call, and she's panicking. She's screaming, where are you? And I'm like, well, I'm in Fort Smith, where I live. Uh, what are, what's going on? I'm thinking... Uh, some robber has come in and, or, or she's in some dangerous situation or, or something like that. And, and she's just hysterical. I'm thinking, you ever seen that movie where uh, the lady is in a trunk and she calls 911 and the 911 person's got to figure out where she, I, I'm thinking something like this has happened because she's so hysterical. And uh, then I'm like, okay, calm down. Tell me what's wrong. She's like, there's something on my doorstep. And I'm like, on your doorstep? What? Do you, I don't. 
okay, well, can you describe it? Because, I mean, is it a scary guy? What's going on? And she's like, I don't know, but it's jumping. And I said, well, can you look a little bit closer? And she looks and she said, it's a toad. And I'm like, well, okay. I was like, why don't you just go shoo it away? No, I, won't. I can't touch it. It's too scary. And so she has stuff in her Walmart bag. And so I said, well, start to throw everything you've got at the frog until it jumps away. And then when it jumps away, you can just go in your house. And so here she is with a Walmart sack on the phone uh, crying hysterically, throwing her, her goods at this frog, hoping that it, hoping that it jumps away. And while I'm on the phone trying to be sympathetic, but really I wanted to say, could you just get over it? It's a toad. Now I just say, get over it. We're married. You're stuck with me now. So I just. (laughs) But you know what? I think this is payback because let me tell you what my wife did one time. She tied fishing line to an alligator, a toy alligator on on the beach. And as the beach walkers were having their romantic little strolls, her and her brother would pull the fishing line and make this alligator crawl out of the ocean and go across their feet at dusk and see people scream and stuff. So I I think this is, um, you reap what you sow, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So now God's going to use some creepy things to reveal himself to us in scripture today. And and I I want you guys to know that how you see God determines everything else about your life. In the scripture uh, where, where God says, what does the world say about me? And then he says some things, but then he says, who do you say that I am? A.W. Tozer said that's the most important question that we can ever answer uh, with the totality of our lives is who we say Jesus is. There's a concept in sociology called looking glass self. And what looking glass self, it's a theory, but, but here's how the theory goes. Who you see the most important person in your life says you are is the identity that you will take on and begin to walk out and live. It's called looking glass self. The person that you've given the most power in your life, and then what they say about you is how you will live the totality of your life. So if you've put God in first place, that's, that's really great. But what if the thoughts I'm thinking God's thinking towards me aren't the thoughts that God's actually thinking? Suddenly, I'm in a deeper deception because I'm attributing thoughts to God that are not God, and those thoughts are then shaping my life. So it's important to know what God thinks about you. Because if you know what God thinks about you, Suddenly, you can live your life in the light of what God thinks and be freed up to walk in life uh, in a free way. Because many of us live in the prisons of the opinions of others. How many of you don't do something because somebody else would say something? Think about it. How, much do you, how many things do you not do because it would tip over the apple cart and somebody might get upset? 
Or somebody might have a different opinion of you. Okay, these are evidences of who we see the most important person in our life to be. Because we can be Christian in name, but yet not have Jesus as Lord of our lives. And so I want to clarify today that God has good thoughts towards you. Because the people that I see that take the most risks for God, that do the most exploits for God, that put themselves out there, all of them have this in common, that God is really, 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 really good. And he really, 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 really loves me so much. So I don't have to live in fear of his opinion of me. I can just walk in his love and his relationship. And I can just be who God's called me to be. Now check this out. Psalm 139, 17 and 18. Get this. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. See, this is true intimacy here. Because intimacy is actually this, into you I see, and into me you see. Intimacy is being known for who we are, yet being loved anyway. And when I don't have to earn love, suddenly the power of love to change my life can then begin to start the process to shape me into the person I need to be. See, if you don't know what God's thinking towards you, and if you don't know that he's got good thoughts towards you, and you think, yeah, God's thoughts can't be numbered, but about me, they're really, really bad. You'll live your life in a low-grade guilt and shame and settle for the lies of the devil and not live life abundantly, but you'll live life to the level of guilt that you're feeling at the moment. And you will drag around. You'll be so low, your front pocket scooping up gravel. And then when that sets in, bitterness sets in, and then it's everybody else's fault and not my own for the reason that I'm in the situation that I'm in. So then... I'm not free to love other people. And this is the supreme issue if God is love. Hear people say all the time, well, marriage is just a piece of paper. Okay. So we're just going to live together. Okay. What you're saying is, I'm not going to commit to you and make this permanent. But I'm going to use the fear of me having the ability to leave you in order to control you and to make you do what I want you to do. And if you quit making me happy, I'm gone. When the biblical definition of relationship is you lay down your life for one another and come into unity together. And this is what we do with God. God, I'm not going to be in a marriage relationship with you, but we can shack up and hook up when I feel like it. And I'm going to use that fear and project that onto you so that I can do what I want to do and not step into the destiny of God that he has for my life. I'm just getting warmed up, so. See, love is at stake. It's not about being mean or hateful. 
You're projecting into the world what God's like. And you've settled for some little thing of like, well, I'm just going to have fun, live my little life, and make heaven by the skin of my teeth. When God's got so much destiny and things that he wants to call you to. But he can't call you to them until you deal with the issues that you've got. But you won't let him deal with the issues if you don't know that he loves you because you'll be too ashamed to put them out there before him and before others that can help you. See, if you don't know what God's thoughts are, you're going to be thinking other thoughts. And those thoughts could be false thoughts, not the Father's thoughts. That's why Jesus came, to clarify what the Father is like. To clarify and to clear up any misunderstandings of what God is actually like. And you know what he says? God is like dad. God's like a father. So he's saying here that he's accessible. That he loves you. And lastly and most importantly, he's creating a family that he's calling you into. He's creating a family. See, Jesus is perfect theology. He's so transformative that all of the Old Testament must be filtered through the life, ministry, cross, and resurrection of God to even find out what God is like. It's like Jesus is the apex of human history and everything must be understood in the light of who he is and what he does and what he thinks and how he is. And so everything about Jesus is to display what God is really like. When Moses got a glimpse of God, he had to be put in the cleft of the rock and it only got to see his hinder parts, whatever that means. Think if I preached to you guys like this the entire, would you know about me? You couldn't see the, my face. You couldn't see my, my mannerisms. You couldn't see anything about me. You could hear my voice, but you couldn't really know what I was trying to communicate to you face to face. So Jesus is God's big reveal. Turn around. He is God's. No, you don't have to turn around. He looks around and said that. <laughs> he turned around and said that. He is God's turnaround to say, now you can see God in the face. Have a relationship with him face to face and know what he's really all about. So in the Old Testament, the reality is sin will contaminate you. So the whole goal is rituals and laws in order to not be sinful so that you might, on the off chance, have a moment to present yourself before God. But you really couldn't even present yourself before God. The only one that could step into the presence of God was a high priest, which was one man, who would have to then become bloody with sacrifices, and then maybe get to go in one time, one time a year, and make uh, amends for the people, then come out and say, hey, I have did the, the thing. So, so you really couldn't even step into relationship with God. So the Old Testament is all about uh, rule-keeping and rituals. 
So let's say a leper comes into the camp. If a leper comes into the camp and is found to have leprosy, he's got to be pushed outside the camp and has to stay in this place. And a priest has got to check on him ever so often and do cleansing rituals. And then when the priest deems him to be okay, then he can come back into the rest of the society with the people of God. So as this went on for years and years and years, it began to bleed into the fabric of the religiosity in Jesus' day. That's why when Jesus did amazing miracles, all they could say is, He doesn't wash His hands before He eats. Why is He healing people on Saturday? They couldn't even see the miracle because they were so caught up in the religiosity and the rule-keeping that they had to negate everything good because it didn't look the way they thought it was supposed to look. And this is the great deception that a rule-keeping religion does. is that we feel like because there's more meat on the scraps that we throw to God, we're in better shape than other people. Whose scraps look the best to give to God? But when Jesus comes, Jesus sends his apostles out to cleanse the lepers. Well, I got excited about that. I guess you guys are, are cool with just, you know, listening to me. Jesus didn't say stay away from lepers. Jesus sent his people to go cleanse the leper. So suddenly, the New Testament reality is, don't stay away from things that will contaminate you. Be an influencer. Be a world changer. I'm going to be with you and inside you. And if you go into those places, you're going to have power and authority over them to begin to shape the culture and begin to change things that need to be changed. That's why Jesus' prayer was, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be our name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is. That Jesus doesn't say, people's going to contaminate you. He says, go touch dead things and bring them back to life. Then you'll know the kingdom has come when dead things start living again. Jesus begins to change the reality that the mercy and grace of God becomes greater. That's why James and John in Luke chapter 9, they get rejected by these Samaritans. And James and John go to the most spiritual person they can think of at the time, Elijah. Like, man, well, Elijah called down fire from heaven when he got rejected. Jesus, should we call down fire and burn up these Samaritans? And Jesus says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. Wow, okay. But then here's what happens in the book of Acts. A man named Philip goes to the Samaritans begins to win them for Christ and calls John to come lay hands on them so that they could be filled with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
So they had it right, just in the wrong way, right? And that's what we have sometimes. A lot of times in our life, we have it right, but we just have the wrong perspective uh, to see the thing properly as it's supposed to be. Now, Jesus is not tolerating sin. Grace that doesn't lead to holiness is not grace. It's not grace. But no one hates sin more than God, yet nobody attracted more sinners than Jesus. Isn't that weird? It's like there's something about his holiness that's attractive because it leads to life more than the rule-following Pharisees, which everybody was running to get away from them. See, one was concerned about rule-keeping. The other's concerned about the well-being and relationship with people. So Jesus shows us what the Father is really like. But also, I want to show you this. He's also the standard in which all humanity is to look like. So not only is he showing us what God looks like, he's showing you what you ought to be looking like. Oh, now it gets personal here. <laughs> well, I liked how you were going earlier, but come on now. Remember the WWJD bracelets, right? What would Jesus do? We're all trying to live into the light of how would Jesus respond in every moment. See, Jesus is the standard of what we should look, look like. Look at this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the whole of your life and sanctification isn't about getting rid of issues and getting rid of sin. It's about walking into a deeper relationship with Jesus where you can better imitate the Father on the earth where men might see your good works and give glory to the Father that is in heaven. See, God is calling us into a new relationship. He's not saying, I, he's saying, I don't care what you know. I care what you are. I care what's really down on the deep side of you, and are you allowing me to transform you from the inside out and become what I've called you to be? I better move on. That's why the world is weird. Because the whole of our existence is to reflect Jesus. Agreed? But yet, nothing you do has a certificate that says, oh, you're reflecting Jesus good, go ahead and start that career field. That's how at odds the world is, is what, with what God, with the true plan of the earth. Nobody's a plumber and they say, well, you know, you did good on your master plumbing uh, test, but you really don't look like Jesus, Frank. So I don't think you're going to be able to work on these pipes and the septic system here. Nothing's like that. And I want to submit to you, not even ministries like that. Ministry is pass a test, answer, say yes, 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 check off these boxes, here's your certificate, you're a pastor. That's why the theory of evolution is so damaging. 
if it was just a biological theory, who cares? But it attempts to tell you who you are and where you came from, separate from God. And you can't identify yourself or figure out who you are separate from Jesus. So check this out. Isaiah chapter 41. We'll blow through this and wrap it up. Isaiah 41, verse 1. And what's going on here is, is, uh, is Isaiah is encouraging Judah. Judah is going to fall in the near future. And Isaiah is prophesying to them to not lose heart, seeing the fall that they're going to have in the future. And he's encouraging them that God has not forgotten them, even though their biggest failure is still ahead. Isn't it nice to know that God encourages you before your failure comes? Do you remember what he said to Peter? Satan's asked you to sift you like wheat, but when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. He's basically telling Peter that there's a great fall coming, but I'm going to be there to catch you. Uh, when you fall. Chapter 41, verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment, who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that, they, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the smoldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, Jacob. Now get this, verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now you're probably thinking here, how encouraging. But what's up with that worm part? Did anybody else think that? If you ever read anything weird in the Bible, study it out because there's probably more to the story. I'm going to encourage you with that. If there's something troubling, study it out. There's something there that God's wanting to show you. If you're like me, you read that before having any understanding of what God was saying and you thought, man, that was going really good. 
But then the truth came out. God, you think I'm a worm. I mean, I kind of knew that, but I kind of was hoping you didn't feel that way. So it's kind of like God boasting about his faithfulness and how he won't leave us. But then there's that part that, well, I'm a worm. And a little bit enters into you and says, I kind of knew it was too good to be true that God might like me. And that's kind of the whole of the Christian walk is that we're, we're scared to know, is, does God really love me? Does he really have good thoughts about me? And with every lie that's tore down, as we heard in the song, and everything that's kicked down and removed, we step into a new light. But isn't there still a little bit of reserve there? Does God really feel this way about me? Kind of seems too good to be true sometimes that God could forgive every sin I've ever committed, knowing all the lousy things that I've done. And then you begin to think about all the lousy things you've done. And then guilt and condemnation and shame comes in and looms over you. And so, yeah, you're still a Christian, but you live with a low-grade guilt. And you walk around like this. And Satan's got you so confused that nobody would see the glory of God on your face, even though every sin's been forgiven and every burden's been lifted. And then we would call it being real. I'm just being real. Well, if reality, if, the, if Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life, then anything outside of what Jesus says is not real. That Jesus is truth that existed eternally before the world. So if you're looking at your circumstances and trying to determine God through that, the truth was before the circumstances that came into existence. So in order to understand truth, we've got to look at Jesus. But, but even theologies were built upon passages that talk about the worm. They called it worm theology. And what worm theology did is it had a really high view of God, that God was awesome and he's mighty, but he's so awesome and so mighty that, that there's no way we can approach him. And that he's so awesome and so mighty that the, uh, the flip side of that is that we are just worms that are just like crawling around in dirt. And this was a prevalent theology in the 17th and 18th century. There's even a hymn written that said, Would he devote the sacred head for such a worm as I? You know it. You've been brushing up on your worm theology over there. That's good. See, this thinking was prevalent in the days of old. And it can be attributed to the ugliness of sin. Because here, I'm here to tell you, sin is ugly. It is ugly. But sin isn't who I am. It's what I might have done or do occasionally. That I am a child of God, a saint of God... I'm made in the image of God, and the image of God predates even the sin nature that I inherited from Adam. So Jesus is trying to get us, by, by dying on the cross and redeeming us, getting us back into the place where we are image bearers, and the darkness and the scales are removed from our eyes that tell us that we've got to be the way we are because dad was that way, and his dad was that way, and begin to put different labels on us that we've got to act this way because we feel this way, and we've got to identify in all these strange uh, things that everything the world's trying to tell us to identify with, and 
And, and, and so we live under that light when in the reality, your original nature and the original purpose for you was to be an image bearer. That would mean you were to reflect the glory of God onto the earth and people were to see you. And when they saw you, they would see God. People would see you and go, wow, there's got to be a God. And I know some of you. And I knew some of you before. And I got to say, there's got to be a God. <laughs> Josh, there's got to be a God. Come on now. I look at this man. I don't say, wow, Josh is a God. I say, no, there's got to be a God because look at that guy. I know his story. You don't come out of that stuff that he come out of if there's not a God. I'm just telling you. So just because God's got a high view doesn't mean we've got to have a low view of ourselves. We can have a high view of God and change our perspective and have a high view of our original calling that God's called us into. Okay, let me prove it to you because I know we've got some naysayers here. Jesus says, through Paul, you are seated with him in heavenly places. So what is he, Paul trying to do? Change your perspective. When John in Revelation is down with the churches and he's writing the letters from Jesus and he's trying to think, man, these churches, are we ever going to get it? And then, in Gen and then in Revelation chapter 4, he says, John, come up here. In other words, get the heavenly perspective from your seat in the heavenly places so that you can see there's a war going on in heaven that's going to redeem the entirety of earth. See, if you don't change your perspective and seat in your heavenly seat every once in a while and get some vision from God, what will happen is you will live in the here and now into the earthly realm. But if you go into the heavenly place and get heaven's perspective, you'll then to begin to dream and figure out ways to bring heaven down to earth and to begin to change this thing that God's called us to change. So yes, God is high and lifted up. But he wants you high and lifted up. He wants you to say, come up here with me. Partner with me to change the world. He's always partnering with men. He calls Abraham. Says, come to a place. Are you ready for this calling? And I'll show you where it is. What? Define the place, and then I'll go, God. No, just go, and I'll show you when we get there. God's always partnering with men and women. Now, back to the worm. And then we'll close. Now, usually in the Bible, the Hebrew word for worm is, is rima, which means maggot. But here in this case, the Hebrew word that Jesus uses uh, for worm here in this Old Testament passage is tola ath. The same word for worm in tola is the same word for scarlet or crimson. 
So what is being described here is a certain particular worm called the crimson worm or the scarlet worm. Both of the scarlet and crimsons are these kind of, it's more of a grub than it is a worm, but they're the colors of blood. They're a deep red. Now get this. This is a crimson worm. It's a very special worm. Uh, When it's time for the female to give birth, which she does only one time in her life cycle, when it's time for her to give birth, she will attach herself to a fence post, a tree, or to something of that kind, develop a hard shell around her, have her children, and so fixes herself onto whatever she's stuck to with that hard shell that she dies. And then as she gives birth, the babies eat her and she becomes their food source. As this process is going on, she secretes a scarlet and crimson liquid that stains the tree that she's on and provides sustenance for the children in which she is taking care of. Run tail that. (laughs) This crimson worm lays eggs under her body, forms a protective shell, and becomes food for her children. This is why the prophetic Psalm 22 6. Remember when David kind of says this weird thing? I think we got it. Hope we got it. Yeah. But I am a worm and not a man. Same Hebrew word. Not maggot. Crimson, scarlet worm. So when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the start of Psalm 22. He's not saying God has forsaken him. He's like, Look to Psalm 22. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. Jesus is saying, oh, man, God's left me. People say, oh, preachers say, well, even Jesus had a moment there of let. No, he did not. Jesus never once had a moment of failure or lapsing in his faith or confidence in his father. He never did have that. What he was trying to say is look at the prophetic psalm that David wrote 1,000 years ago. And he says, look, I am a scarlet worm. I'm stuck and pinned to a tree. And I'm staining it with my blood. And I'm creating food and sustenance for my people. And I'm going to provide for them and take care of them and forgive them. And I'm going to lead them for the rest of their lives. And my food's going to become food for my body's going to become food for them, and my blood's going to become drink for them, and I will supply every need that they have. So when God says, Fear not, you worm, He's saying, Fear not, I've created a covering around you, I've created a crimson covering that the enemy can't break through. I've stained you for the rest of your life, and you're going to be my blood-bought children throughout all eternity. So next time you see somebody, say, fear not, you worm. God's done covered you. He secreted his crimson blood on you. 
wash you whiter than snow. <laughs> so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, <laughs> who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That on that cross he became an addict with a needle in his arm. <laughs> that on that cross he becomes a prostitute. That on that cross he becomes sin, the false version of you and who you thought you were. And he kills it on the cross, not for his sake, for your sake. And he kills every false identity as a representation of humanity. His flesh is ripped and his false identity is ripped as a criminal and everything else. So that he could raise from the dead and emerge in a new identity. That when if you would identify with him, he would raise you to a new of life and you could begin to walk in the identity that he's called you to walk into. That Jesus' death on the cross was to kill the identity of false self. Because sin is not who you are, it's what you do. Some of you are identifying with sin because you say it's who you are. I'm here to tell you, you have bought the lie. And God has allowed himself to be murdered in representation of your false self so that you could find your true self. That's why the Bible says you want to find your life, lose it. Lose it. Because it's only in Jesus where we find our true identity. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you like a bunch of worms. He stayed on that cross because of worms like me and you. Check this out. I'm closing with this. Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, when did he do that on the cross? He will see his offspring and prolong his days. So when Jesus was on the cross, he was thinking about you. It's biblical. It's not pie in the sky. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring. And he wants you to be his offspring. He's calling you. To have a relationship with him. And I pray you do. I pray you do. Lord, 